It's a joy to worship together as God's people as we celebrate that our Lord is indeed risen. Take your Bibles. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll continue in our series this morning. 2 Samuel 7. We'll be looking together at verses 1 through 17. What is the best speech that you have ever heard in your life? Was there one in particular that had a profound impact, not only on you in the moment, but as maybe stuck with you? You can remember parts of what the speaker was saying. Well, what makes for a great speech? According to one source, a speech that has lasting impact must have three main ingredients. It must have style, substance, and impact. A great speech is masterfully constructed, capturing the attention of its hearers, both in the moment and in the future. It lasts over time. It still resonates, even though it's not given to the original audience. It also must be focused on a worthy theme. It will appeal to the audience's highest values and ideals and speak into their need. And it will have impact. Its hearers will both be persuaded by its message and it will change hearts and minds. Now on the list of greatest speeches in history, maybe you can think of some of them. What might be on that list? What might be included there? Uh, Some that you might remember are Churchill's speech, We Shall Fight on the Beaches. Maybe Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Or Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Many others are listed. What do you think is the greatest speech in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament. It's a hard thing to answer, isn't it? When we're talking about the Bible, God's word, it's hard to choose. We don't think of the Bible in speeches like that, perhaps. You might also be right to suppose that I'm pointing you to 2 Samuel 7. The Lord's words recorded here in chapter 7 make up the longest recorded speech that God has given since the days of Moses. God has something very profound to say in this text. The speech certainly contains all the three elements of a great speech mentioned previously. It is masterfully constructed. Its substance contains truths that resound and encourage God's people again and again. And its impact, its impact cannot be overstated. I think you'll see what I mean as we move through the text this morning. The truths revealed in this chapter have reverberated from the moment that God spoke these words all throughout. It will continue into eternity. Now, do you ever doubt God's promises to you? God is going to make some lavish, extravagant, staggering promises in this text. And at times in Israel's history, there was great doubt as to whether or not God would honor these words. Do you ever wonder how he will ever make good on his word in the current circumstances and chaos of your life? That's really where we live, isn't it? We know God has promised fantastic things, and yet oftentimes in our life, it doesn't seem like he's working in that same way. 
God makes big promises in this passage. And Israel will doubt. Do we have reason to doubt his promises? It's natural for us. But do we have reasons? Good reasons to doubt our God. In our text this morning. This text will teach us that God makes a staggering promise. Of never ending grace. To and through his king. Now God said to Eli in 1 Samuel 2.20, I will honor those who honor me. This truth is captured in the events of 2 Samuel 6 and 7. This is where the entire story of the books of Samuel have been leading. I think you've been getting the impression as we've gone through chapters 4, 5, 6, and now 7 that this is building to a culminating point. God is accomplishing his work through David. We've been told he's been accomplishing this work for David. God has established him as king for the sake of his people Israel. And that's the entire story of the book of Samuel. God's people need a godly leader. Where will he come from? God will provide this leader. We need a leader who will serve in humility. God's people need a leader who will love God and obey his word. That was Saul's great downfall, wasn't it? He had little regard for God and his word. They needed a king who would represent God to the people and point them back to him as their true ruler. And David is that man that God has chosen to lead. He's finally now pushed the enemies of Israel out of their land. He's conquered Jerusalem and made it Israel's capital. And he's returned the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence with the people, to its rightful place at the center of their worship. Think about all of Israel's history that's been building to this point. This is finally now the fulfillment of what God told Moses and Joshua to do. Claim the land that I promised to Abraham. So that's done. What will David now seek to do? Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll read just the first three verses. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Let's ask for his help as we consider the text together. Father, we confess our need of your spirit to open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. Lord, this passage is massive in scope. Yet there's promises here for David. And we don't want to miss what you're revealing about your own character. So help us, give us Ears to hear, help us to see our God who is enthroned, reigning forever through his king. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we'll examine our text as seen in four parts. First, the situation from David's perspective. Second, the situation then from God's perspective. God's purpose thirdly for David and his purposes finally beyond 
David. So first, the situation from God's perspective. Now, verse 1 is really quite a change of pace from what we've seen and experienced already in 2 Samuel. It says, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest. Once David had been anointed by Samuel many years ago, after that point, his life had been filled, filled with hardship and challenges. There hadn't been a moment's peace, it seems. Most of that time, David had been on the run for his life. From dangerous situation to dangerous situation. He's running from his own father-in-law, the king. He's chased out of his homeland for fear of his life. He's fought in scores and scores of battles. And even began his family in enemy lands. When he does finally come home as king here in 2 Samuel, he arrives to civil war and great internal conflict. This man has seen much bloodshed and war and heartache. And yet we read in verse 1, God has finally given him rest. It seems perhaps that he'd earned an extended vacation, doesn't it? But David models for us convicting godliness In these verses. He's not idle spiritually. Though David is at rest. He does not fail to keep his mind. Focused on God. He's still zealous for God. And his people. Theologian and author A.W. Pink states. When the conflict is over. And the sword is laid down. We are very apt to relax. And become careless about spiritual concerns. And then it is while off our guard that Satan so often succeeds in gaining an advantage over us. David has a very clear understanding of God's provision in his life, of his grace to him. And that continues to motivate a God-honoring self-forgetfulness and passion to serve and promote and honor his God. He's not done serving God just because he's at rest. Ease and comfort are often a curse in our lives. They can be. They tempt us towards spiritual apathy and laziness because our temporal, physical needs seem to be met. And often they seem to be met by our own doing, our own hand. We need very little physically, so we tend to conclude we need very little spiritually. Matthew Henry wisely notes, grateful souls, a soul like David here, never thinks they can do enough for God. But when they have done much, they are still projecting to do more and devising liberal, great-hearted things. They cannot enjoy their own accomplishments while they see the church of God in need. Or convicted by David not spiritually taking his ease. He turns his mind again to his God. In verse 2, we are introduced to a new character. He appears abruptly on the scene. He will play more prominently in future chapters. David's seeking counsel from the right source, the prophet Nathan. This man's role will be significant in the story of David. And verse 17 tells us he is a godly prophet because he's faithful to speak all of God's word to David. 
Now, David's concern in verse 2 is for God's glory. His thinking goes something like this. I now live in a palace, a mansion made of cedar. But God's presence is still out there. The footstool of his throne sits in a tent. Something's not right. Certainly, in David's thinking, it would be honoring to God to give God a more, the ark, the tabernacle, a more permanent home. Nathan seems to think that such a God-centered ambition is wise and good. So he gives his consent to move forward. Do all that is in your heart. But here we're brought up short a little bit. Is this good and right? How could it not be? Or second point, the situation from God's perspective. Let's see what God says in verses 4 through 7. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So God doesn't take much time to correct and direct. He says, go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's answer here is gracious and wise. He sends Nathan back to David almost immediately, but this time with a word from God. He doesn't say no directly. And I love how he intends to make David think. He asks him a question. Would you build me a house to dwell in? Is that really what I need? Have I told you that's what I need? Now first, God says, I'm not discontent with my humble dwelling. The tent was all that I require. He says, through all these many years, I've never needed a house. I've never needed a house to accomplish my plans, to dwell with and protect my people. Second, he says, I've never told you I needed a house. Certainly, there are plenty of issues that God has had with Israel, that Israel's needed a word from God on. But God says, I've never spoken to you about this. God's answer here is no, not yet. It's not a hard and fast no, it's a not yet. It's not a rebuke of David, but it certainly is a teaching moment. God's not telling David that his desire here is wrong, only his timing. Through Solomon's words at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, God affirms that this was a God-honoring desire in David's heart. He doesn't despise what David is doing. He doesn't say it's wrong. He says that David did well in this desire, that it was in his heart. And yet still, this was not God's plan. God had more in mind to do for and through David. He's going to tell David, your job is to bring peace. Your job is to push out all the enemies so that one day your son in peace can build this temple. God certainly did intend one day to have a more permanent building. 
This was told to us in Deuteronomy 12, 10, and 11. God had said, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose. Notice, he's saying it should be at God's direction to make his name dwell there. Then you shall bring all that I command you your burnt offerings, and your sacrifices. God does indeed intend for his travels in that tent to come to an end. But not yet. Not yet. The lesson here for us is significant. The lesson is that proper worship always, always, always begins with God. He speaks first. He initiates the discussion. Not because he does not appreciate a good desire like this, but because we don't understand his mind. We don't understand his plans. We don't know his timing. David doesn't know all that God is trying to accomplish. We're limited. And thus, if we're going to worship in a way that truly honors God, we must be okay that he sets the terms. The best of human beings, with even the best of motives, often get things wrong. We don't see life the way that God does. Our highest aspirations, our noblest motives, still fall far short of him and his purposes. So what is the only safe way to honor and worship him? Revelation, then response. We must have his revelation to understand him and his plans for our lives. Consider some of the ways that we see mankind misunderstanding when it comes to worship like this. We've had illustrations of this in the book of Samuel. Eli mistook Hannah's emotional, heartfelt prayer as drunkenness because of its intensity. He had no idea what God was doing on that very ordinary day in that very ordinary woman's life. Samuel himself, who seems to have been far more astute to God's mind, concluded that Jesse's first son was surely the one that God had chosen to be king. He was repeatedly mistaken as son after son was brought forward. And think of the Apostle Paul. Remember, in the New Testament, he wants to go toward Macedonia. He says, surely this is where God would want me to go and share the gospel. And God says, no. You need to go over here. Do you see? God is to be the one who initiates. He speaks. He plans. He leads. He makes his promises to us. And then we respond faithfully to the word that he intentionally provides. So this isn't intended as a sharp rebuke, but as a gentle reminder that we are dependent on God to lead us, not the other way around. A good good human plan still must be corrected and directed by divine revelation. God's servants, even God's servants, are often deficient in properly understanding his will. And this leads us, this helps us avoid placing too much confidence in any one man. No matter how godly, it exposes our own need for God to give us the wisdom that we lack. But notice... This teaches something about the nature, the character of our God that is beautiful. 
we should carefully note God's character in this exchange. God has not settled in a house because he fully intends to travel with his people even in common ways. They've not really been carrying him in the ark and they need to be reminded of that again and again. They're not carrying God as if he's dependent on them. He had always been guiding and carrying them. The ark was sacred, yes, but it's still just a symbol of his presence with them. The point is that God is going with his people and he's going in a way that they can see and be assured and be comforted. He's walking with them in their travels. He's choosing to dwell in a silly little tent. He's living among them by choice. He shares in their journey, their hardships, their joys. Do you see what this means? Even the almighty God of the Old Testament who can send plague after plague on Egypt, who can divide the waters of the Red Sea. He's content to dwell in a tent in order to be with, in order to comfort his people. He's not ashamed or bothered that his presence is seen through this tent. Those who worship idols build magnificent temples to their gods. God says, I'm fine with the tent. To whom does this kind of humility point. Do you see how beautiful and significant it is then when John writes of Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling, his tent, his tabernacle, his home among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. All of these pictures of the ark and the tabernacle are then fulfilled and completed in Jesus. He reveals the father to us and demonstrates that he chooses to be with sinful, unfaithful, even at their best, lacking understanding. His glory is magnified in such Humility. Now God has more to say to David. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. Verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Verses 8 through the first half of verse 9, God rehearses his grace to David in the past. He's going to start by saying, David, remember all that I've done for you. He reminds David that he was God's choice as king. David didn't make himself king. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. I chose you from following the sheep that you should be prince. 
He says he's been with David every step of the way. I've been with you wherever you went, no matter how hard or dark. I traveled with you as I've always done with my people. And it was his power that defeated every enemy. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. David's experienced God's grace in his life over and over and over again. And God says, never forget, I was with you. He's been the undeserving recipient of God's choice, God's presence and protection. And yet, God still has more grace to give. In verses 9 through 11, God will give David four promises. You can see them in the I will statements. God's commitments. His promises to David are directly tied to his provision for his people. You'll see him make a promise to David, then a promise for God's people, another promise for God's people, and a promise to David. You see these in these statements. I will make for you first a great name. I will appoint a place for my people and plant them. I will give you rest from all your enemies. And I will make you a house, a dynasty. You see in these promises the grace of our God to an unworthy servant. In verse 5, David has said, God, I want to build you a house. In verse 11, God says, that project can wait. I'm going to build you a dynasty, a house that will last forever. Notice that God's promises to David stand before and after his promises that directly affect his people. Look back at the text and notice how often God brings up his people to David. He refers to them four times in this middle section. God provides a king so that his people will be protected and brought to peace. He's making David secure in order to make Israel secure. Do you see what's being uh, taught here in this? God provides for his people through his king. He's preoccupied with the welfare of his people, so he gives them a king. Doesn't this remind you of our Christ? Jesus is preoccupied with the welfare of his sheep, and he gives up his life for them. That's the kind of servant Jesus will be. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, all these four promises that God said he will give to David, he'd already said to Abraham. And if we had time, we could trace out through the rest of the Bible and see how they are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. But for now, what we're supposed to see is that our God is piling grace upon grace upon grace upon this shepherd boy. Fourthly, we see the Lord's purpose beyond David. Let's read now the the rest of our passage. Verses 12 through 17. God continues, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his, your son's kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom 
shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. These verses contain what is correctly referred to as the Davidic covenant. Though it's not called that directly in this passage, it's named that in Psalm 89. It's referred that way to in 2 Samuel 23. These are God's promises to David for his son, for Israel, and finally for us. There's going to be a near fulfillment So there's some things that God is saying here that will be directly fulfilled in his son Solomon. But there's a far fulfillment to these promises. And it's good and healthy for us in our Bible understanding to begin to think. How how did God fulfill even these four promises that we mentioned early? How is God fulfilling these verses 12 through 16 through Jesus the son of David? How will we understand that? They're all focused on what God has said in verse 12, that he's building David a house. Now, we're first to notice that these promises are not going to be fulfilled in David's lifetime. And that teaches us that death cannot overcome God's promises. God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers and I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This promise will last far longer than David will live. David will die, and later so will Solomon. David's line of kings who sit on the throne is perhaps the longest in recorded history. His physical dynasty lasts somewhere over 400 years. But it's still cut off. So is the promise then void? Of course not. Death will not ultimately cut off David's line. God has promised, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But that can't mean Solomon, can it? Secondly, in this section, God promises that sin will not negate this covenant. God pulls no punches here. He addresses the reality of sin in David's line. And if we know anything of the rest of Israel's history, the kings are filled with wickedness. They test God's patience over and over until he must punish them and send them into exile. Solomon himself will sin greatly and God will discipline him as his child because he loves him. But notice, there's a limit that God places here. God promises my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Just think of it. If God's promises were based on human faithfulness, none of them would be fulfilled. God is going to deal with these very sinful kings in David's line, and yet his promise is that sin will not have dominion over his plan, over his kingdom. Individual kings will be dealt with for their sin, but God will maintain his covenant Finally, God promises that time, time itself, will not wear out these promises. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What can this mean? This is the third time that God has used the word forever to describe these promises. 
Now, no matter what it looked like as Israel's kings failed, the kingdom breaks in half. Israel sent into exiles. God's promises still stood firm. Even though no physical son of David sat on the throne, there's many, many years of silence. Many years where God's faithful people wonder, have you forgotten what you said? From out of the darkness that the sins of God's people plunged them into, the light breaks into the darkness in Matthew 1. Where God says, or we read, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This teaches us the dependability of our God. God's plans to build for David's dynasty, his plans are unstoppable. Though Solomon's temple is destroyed, Jesus builds a house that will last forever. Paul tells the Ephesians believers in uh, Ephesians 2, 19 through 21, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Do you see the theme? Do you see what God is doing? He will build a house forever through his son. God promises to be to David, David's son, a father. And yet he declares of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He promises that his kingdom will endure forever. And yet we know Solomon's throne and palace are susceptible to the ravages of time and sin and foreign invaders. It's overthrown by foreign enemies. But the kingdom of David's final son lasts forever. And we read God has highly exalted this final son of David and bestowed on him the name. Do you see a great name that is above every name? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's king. He's my king to the glory of the Father. This text calls us to look at what God does for those who are small and insignificant in the world. Think of David's beginnings. God established an eternal kingdom for all the nations through the work of his son, but it all starts with this simple shepherd boy. One shepherd boy among thousands and thousands of others in Israel. And he plucks him out and he says, I will build you a dynasty that will last forever. Isn't God's plan magnificent? It will bless all the nations. It's breathtakingly powerful. Neither sin, nor time, nor death can defeat it. John Piper writes about this truth from this passage. The most practical truths any Christian can know are that God is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-for-you. The deep emotional assurance that even though you're a sinner, God's attention is focused on you with omnipotent, omnipresent mercy. It's the day-to-day power to give you deep peace even in the midst of your hardships. And that's what a text like this tells you. 
Nothing will have a more important practical impact on the way that you use your money, spend your leisure, pursue your vocation, rear your children, deal with conflict, or handle anxiety. Heartfelt confidence that the sovereign God is working everything together for your good out of sheer grace affects every area of your life. This text teaches us that our God has kept all of these promises through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, what does 2 Samuel 7 have to do with Christ's resurrection? That might be a question you've asked yourself this morning. Can you see any hints of it, though? Why preach on God's promises to David on Easter? Consider what the Apostle Peter says in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. He's saying because he promised it all the way back here with David. God keeps all of his word to us in Jesus Christ. Consider how knowing these truths helps us understand more of what he's doing through Jesus. Look at this verse at the beginning of the New Testament as we're introduced to Jesus and see what Gabriel is saying that Mary certainly might have had an idea about, but could she have known all that God was doing? Listen to how this fits so directly into these promises that God is giving to David. The angel says, he will be great. I will give him a great name. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary pondered these things. She treasured them in her heart. How could God be doing that through this little baby? Did you know the New Testament ends referring to these same promises? In Revelation twenty-two sixteen and following, King Jesus himself speaks and says, I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Let him who is thirsty come. Let him who desires to take of the water of life without price come. The king of love is on his throne. He leads us home. Knowing this God of staggering promises provides unshakable stability both now and forever. So the encouragement is, come, come. Place your confidence in him. He's determined to care and provide for his people through his king. Does God ever forget his promises to his people, to you? See that neither sin, nor time, nor death diminish them. In any way, our God reigns from this time, hundreds of years, thousands of years, to the end of the New Testament and beyond. He will accomplish all his will in a world that so often seems like it's spinning out of his control. 
Aren't you blown away by the scope of God's promises here in these simple words to this shepherd, this servant, David? Our wise and gracious God has recorded these words and promises for us to see them so that we will worship and trust him. And I want you to think about what God is doing in this. Think of it. He puts himself to the test by giving us this record. And then he proves his word true to show us his glory and for our good. So Jesus, the king, urges us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And do you hear the confidence we should hear in that appeal to come? I am the king promised ages ago. I can do what I say. Those who don't know him come in repentance and faith and submit. Those who are following him, may his spirit grow our confidence and receive our grateful worship this morning. What hope do we have in both life and death? This text affirms that our hope is secure in God's king, the son of David who reigns now and forevermore. Paul declares in Romans 1 that by his resurrection from the dead, he was declared to be the son of God in power. Handel's Messiah rings out with this final anthem, and he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Our God, you are magnificent. You are mighty in ways that we can only begin to get a glimpse of in your word. Time is no challenge to you. You don't forget or minimize your promises over the ages. No matter what circumstances, no matter how the heathen rage, no matter how unfaithful your people, no matter what chaos surrounds us, you are still on the throne. From the beginning of the New Testament to the end, you're declaring to us that our God reigns in Jesus, our Christ. He deserves our worship then. He deserves our praise and he deserves our utmost confidence. Lord, so often in our lives, there are things that toss us about and we run from this or that as a source or remedy. But our confidence must be found in Christ who alone helps us stand firm, who alone guides us on our way. May we rest in the promises of a God who makes staggering claims and a covenant with a people who do not deserve it. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his resurrection, which prove your promises true. In Jesus' name, amen.